Wow, what a fun conversation this was. In this episode, I talked to a veteran teacher from a different part of the world. We discuss differences and similarities between our education systems. We talk about the school calendar, the holiday schedules, teacher evaluation processes, teachers' mental health, parent involvement, and so much more. Turns out, and sadly... I don't know a lot about the American education system, and it's quite embarrassing, actually. (laughs) I realized this when I had to explain things like tenure to our guest. However, all in all, as my gut told me, there are some universal realities that all teachers face, and universal experiences and feelings uh, such as some of the frustrations and joys of the work that we all share as well. And I had the opportunity to hear another teacher's take, and I'm very happy to bring that to you, to share it with you as well. I learned a lot in this episode, and I know you will too. Enjoy. Stay tuned. Hello, and welcome to the Turn and Talk podcast, where educators take the mic back and speak their truth without filter. I interview teachers and school personnel and ask them to share their views and experiences about education anonymously. If you work in a school setting or have worked in one and have something to say about education, something that needs to be said out loud or something that isn't said enough, then please email me at turnandtalkpodcast at gmail.com because I'd love for you to take the mic back and add your voice to the conversation about public education. Subscribe, share, and enjoy the show. Hi, everyone. We have a very special guest on the show today from the opposite side of the world. She's a primary school teacher teaching kids in what we call here in the United States the fourth grade, uh, but also known as year four in Australia. You heard that right. Our guest is a classroom teacher in Australia. She has been in a few different schools in her 30 years as a classroom teacher. It is just incredible. Uh, I am so glad to have a chance to chat with you. Welcome to the show. How are you? I'm very well, thank you, and thanks so much for having me. We are really excited to have you and to get your perspective on education uh, in Australia especially. So we'd love to just get started with a little bit about you. Uh, What do you teach and uh, what other roles in education have you performed? Okay, so um, I teach year four in Australia at the moment. I've taught year four for like the last... Five years, I think. Mainly have taught years two to five in my career. Haven't done, you know, little ones or older ones so much. But I have done a bit of supply teaching, which you call substitute teaching, during my time off having my children. I teach, you know, most subjects like over there, so maths, English, geography, history, a bit of health, technology. I actually don't teach science science which I don't mind because we have like a science specialist teacher so that's like Mm -hmm. our we call our non-contact time which is release time for planning and preparation so other things that I'm involved in I uh, mentor student teachers whenever I can I'm also involved so I coach and manage field hockey so I take a team away each year to represent their school um, playing in a major hockey carnival which is always a good time. Wow. How are the years divided in Australia? So here we have elementary usually, 
which is K through five. Then we have the middle years, the middle schools, we call them, which is six through eight. And then high school, which is nine through 12. What's it like in Australia? So it goes from uh, prep, which is the one before year one. Prep to year six is your primary school. Then year seven to 12 is secondary school. So we don't have middle schools. Some wow. um, private schools do that middle schooling thing, but not so much in the public system. And what do you think about that? What, the way that we do it? Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty good. It, up to about three, four years ago, our last year of uh, primary school was year seven. So that's recently changed to catch up with all the other states in Australia. So in Australia, um, year seven in a lot of other states was the start of year um, high school and where I'm from in Queensland that wasn't the case so Queensland's um, kind of in sync with the rest of the country now so they leave uh, primary school a little bit younger and start the high school system yeah at 12 or 13 so yeah it works I'm I'm pretty happy with the way that it's worked over the years and um yeah, not too many big changes in 30 years apart from that year mm-hmm. seven going into high school. That's very interesting because uh, when I talk to teachers here, oftentimes they talk about developmentally speaking, they talk about uh, year seven, uh, seventh grade as being particularly difficult year in terms of just a social emotional changes going through in children and adolescents at that time. Do you guys have a year like that where you feel like this is different? Well, year seven used to be like that, but I guess now that it's moved on, the sixes are kind of taking over, you know, because yeah. they think they think they're the they're the leaders in the school, so they can you know develop a bit of attitude and you know a bit of you know not not doing the right thing all the time, but you always kind of instill in, into them, you know, you're the leaders, the rest of the school are looking up to you, you've got to do the right thing, you know, your model modeling behaviors that you know are respectful and. And so, so that's, that's what we try and do here. But I think if you eliminate a grade level or year level, you're always going to have that issue of, you know, they think they're the top dog and things start to go pear shaped, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's an interesting point. I, I do, I do see that. Tell us a little bit about how did you end up in, in teaching? I've always loved school. Um, I grew up across the road from a school and I used to get there really quite early, which is really quite sad. But my (laughs) year six teacher was amazing um, and I think she may have influenced my decision to become a teacher. My sister is also a teacher, so she's older than me, but she's in the high school system and teaches PE, like, do you call it PE there, physical education? Yep, yep. So she teaches PE and maths. Yeah, just I think just always liking school and having pretty good teachers and thought, you know, want to make a difference in some kids' lives and headed down that way. How do you become a teacher in Australia? What are the qualifications and requirements, et cetera? So when I went through, it was actually a three-year diploma course at a teacher's college. But now we have universities here. So we have no colleges. We just have universities. And apart from TAFE, which is technical and further education colleges. So you do like a four-year, four years of training at university. 
sometimes that can be reduced to three and a half, depending on whether you do some extra, they have like trimesters or semesters. So if you do like a trimester, you can usually get your degree done quicker. Um, so that's the way it works. Mm-hmm. Is there any kind of license uh, that you have to earn in addition to the degree? No, no license. You you just have to register to um, the teachers association get a registration and then you can start teaching do you guys have alternate routes to teaching for example i was one of those teachers where i was a career changer Uh, i was in the business world for a little bit but i always wanted to be a teacher but i already had my bachelor's degree in a different specialization i i majored in english literature and then when i decided to become a teacher there was this separate track that i was able to enroll into and got a temporary license to teach while I will also getting additional credits required to be able to be a teacher? Yes, we do have that. So um, you can do business, you could do something, you could get your degree in whatever you're doing. And then if you decide to go into education, I think it's called a postgrad, they do like a master's and they only have to do 18 months which is, you know, pretty daunting being thrown into a classroom uh, when you've never been in one before. And, you know, you can have your piece of paper to go and teach after 18 months. It's a bit scary. (laughs) Yeah, it really is. It's, I, I, I mean, I went through it and it was definitely did not feel prepared in any way to do it. Do you guys also have things like Teach for, we have Teach for America, for example. It's an organization that recruits young graduates from some of the top universities and tries to place them into high need areas, high poverty areas where teachers are usually more difficult to retain and place. They tend to be, you know, uh, very, very, very demanding teaching jobs. And because we have a shortage in these areas of teachers, organizations like Teach for America have popped up. Do you guys have programs like that? We don't have a company similar to what you're talking about, but um, so do those people get paid more for going into higher, the higher needs schools? Do they get paid any extra? Not really, but uh, generally speaking, those high need areas just tend to pay more in general. So regardless of which track of teaching preparation you take to get there, typically speaking in urban settings, pay tends to be a little bit higher. Um, for example, I teach in New York City and New York City pays higher than a lot of other uh, small... I know that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I definitely know that. <laughs> so, it, you know, that's that's a thing, but nothing, you know, there's no other incentive really. So we have something called here called like a rural scheme because, you know, Australia is a huge country, very similar to yours, spanning across, you know, the... The miles and there are little schools that you know you take you a long way from home so they have like an incentive system to young graduates and we call it your country service so meaning going out in that you know outback but you could be you could travel like three four hours from the closest capital city and that still wow. counts as your country service so you actually get paid more to go out there than say let's say I was teaching in the capital city of my state and my friend decided to go and do her country service she can actually earn more 
because it's an incentive for them to go out and do that and because they're away from the city and they don't have the access to the resources, you know, food, clothing, things like that, they will pay you some extra money. Wow, yeah, that, and, that sounds similar. Okay. And sometimes um, because it can be quite isolated and like you could rock up in a town that's got 500 people in it or less, they will have teacher accommodation for you and you could pay something like $15 a week to live in it. Wow, that's incredible. Yeah. That's, that sounds like a great program. And do you find that in places like that, uh, teachers tend to stay uh, a while or usually do you find that a lot of people just do their service and then, you know, find their way back home? Probably a bit of both. So teachers, what we do, we, we accrue points. So let's say the further you, you go away from your capital city or your regional area, the higher the points you get. So let's say I was teaching, you know, 12 hours drive away mm-hmm. in, from my capital city in my state because Australia is a huge country and you can, like, I can drive for 18 hours and I'll still be in my state. So Gosh. let's say I, <laughs> I go there and um, you can get allocated points, which goes towards your transfer system. And this is the difference with um, in your country. I know you can stay in the same school all your life, whereas yep. we don't have that here. In the state where I live in, they sometimes might look at you and think, oh, you've been in this school for, you know, seven to ten years. It's time for you to, you know, develop professionally, let's send you on somewhere else. So let's say I went to teach 14 hours away from my um, capital city, I might get seven transfer points. Let's say I go stay there for three years, that means I accrue 21 transfer points. Because I've got so many points under my belt, I'm able to basically pick and choose where I want to come back to teach. So that's the other incentive. So to related to that point, then do you guys have teacher unions? Yes, the, we have unions. And tenures. Are you familiar with the term tenure? Mm, you might want to explain it. Sure, sure. I'll explain a little bit. So a tenure is like a mixed bag here in the United States. Like there's a lot of people that it's basically after a few years of teaching, uh, starting in your second year, teachers now start to build a portfolio that highlights their skills and knowledge and the development that they've had over the past couple of years. And the idea is they present that portfolio to the uh, superintendent and the school principal to sort of get their place uh, to be a permanent place in the school. And and what happens is kind of like a job security thing too. So after you, if you earn your tenure, that means that um, it is, you know, one of the things that it gets a lot of negativity around is that it's once a person gets tenure, it's very hard to get rid of them. Um, yes. If all of a sudden they turn bad, like a bad teacher. Um, however, you know, it's it's really there for both job protection and to give teachers uh, some power as well um, so that, you know, they have uh, they're not unfairly treated or unfairly yes. removed because they've hit a certain level of seniority and earning a certain level of pay. So they're not abused because of it. So do you guys have some kind of contract like that where your job so we have, more secure? We have teachers on that are on contract. So they're waiting for a permanent job. So if, you know, if they find that they're doing their job well, um, 
some teachers can wait three or more years. I know that's happened in the past, but I don't think the waiting time is as long now. But I knew a teacher that, you know, he waited seven years for permanency. So they're always at the end of the school year looking for a contract. So they've got some money coming in. See, we get paid over our our break time, like summer break time. I know you guys don't. But um, so we get paid we have a choice. Yeah, we have a choice. Yeah. Okay. So the way it works is we can choose to have our salary uh, equally spread across the whole year, or we can not get paid for the two months of the summer and just get paid a little bit more during the time that we're working. Mm. Most people choose to get paid the whole year. Yeah. Well, that makes common sense to me. Because uh, is that the same, though, across all states in America? Probably not. I, I don't know, to be honest, but yeah. probably yeah, not. So, yeah, they will, the, the principal will offer them uh, a permanent position. And you know how I was talking about the country service. So a lot of teachers, young teachers who are, are just fresh out of university will go and do that country service because they will get, the guarantee of permanency mm-hmm. yeah so there's lots of carrots dangling to help sure. you know the the young ones coming out of university there's that um the resource the rural scheme incentive where they get paid extra and then they say you go to this place and you will definitely have it a permanent job and mm-hmm. you know if it happens to be a high points then if they do three years, they can basically pick and choose where they want to come back to, which could be their hometown. It could be one of the, you know, the best areas to teach in, so to speak. Yeah, so there's those those systems are in place. Do you find there's a lot of disparity among schools in Australia, depending on neighbourhoods and income levels? Oh, for sure. Yes. Yes. And is it similar yep. where, like, in bigger cities, uh, more urbanized uh, cities, schools tend to be of a more diverse quality than in the suburban side? Yes, they, um, there's very – some you can go to some cities and the English, you know, English as a second language can be um, hmm. very high with the amount of, you know, non-English speaking background and they're learning English as their new language, that that's quite prevalent. And then, you know, depending on what side of the highway you teach on can just decide whether it's going to be, you know, high, um, high socioeconomic school or a low socioeconomic school and what resources are available depending on, you know, your clientele. Mm-hmm. Love to just hear your your experience on professional development. How does that work? What kind of development do you guys get, and do teachers in general get? So, at the start of the year, we sit down with our deputy principal, and we are to we make like professional goals. So we have to agree on you know what we want to achieve for the year. So sure. let's say I might want to incorporate more iPads into my classroom. You know during literacy groups or whatever. So as that's one of my goals, I would then seek out um, professional development in that avenue. Like there might be schools that are doing professional developments for teachers, learning about apps and how they work and actually visiting schools that have um, one to, 
one on one to one iPad classes and things like that and go and visit them. So that would mm-hmm. be a high priority for me because I've written that down on my goal, if you know what I mean. Sure. Yeah. So there is money available. You just have to seek it out and say, you know, I want to do this PD on this. And then they might say to you, well, is it on your your plan for the year? And you say, oh, yes. And then you probably got more chance of being able to access that PD because you've written it down. Very interesting. That made me also think about teacher evaluation process. So what is your teacher evaluation process like in the public schools? We get told in staff meetings, oh, we're going to, you're going to have like walkthroughs and, you know, Mm -hmm. where the, the deputies may come through and they might talk to kids and say, you know, what are you learning about? And so they're, they're talking to kids and they've got like a little checklist where they might check off, you know, oh, the, you know the student knew what mm-hmm. they were doing or what the, the Walt and the Wilf and all that kind of stuff was for the lesson. But we don't have so much formal observation. We might have it from our, our head of curriculum or our pedagogical coach when we've got a, we might have a school focus. So let's say we have a school focus on um, explicit instruction. Are you familiar with that? Yep. Yeah. Like I do, you do, we do. Exactly. I do, I do, we do, you do. So that gradual um, responsible, gradual release of responsibility. Gotcha. So let's say, so our school has taken that on, in the last year, for example, and there might be pedagogical coach come in and they might observe you concentrating on that aspect in your teaching. Mm -hmm. And then they give you, you know, a feedback, give you a form and said, oh, you know, you might need to work on this or this worked really well. So it's more on a school-based decision on how we're going to go, what direction we're going to go as a school. Sure. So by the end of the year, though, you don't get like a rating or something where it says, nope. oh, this teacher is a proficient rate teacher. Nope. What? Nothing like that. <laughs> nope. <laughs> that, that's incredible. I just have never been in a system where that hasn't been the case. So it's very uh, surprising to me. So how often would you be looked at? So it depends. So newer teachers, a lot, yeah. they, they get observed more. I think now in New York City, the number is six. They have to have six observations. I could be wrong here, but I think it's between three and six. But as a tenured teacher, you can be informally observed, you know, but there's only one formal observation. By formal meaning is when you, you know, somebody, your, your supervisor walks in, they observe you for a class period, provide you with written feedback based on a rubric and they, you know, offer you a a full evaluation of all of the teaching areas based on that one observation. Hmm. And at the end of the year, but at the end of the year, um, you know, we have, let's say there were three ratings that happened over the, over the year, by the end of the year, they're sort of aggregated and averaged out into a single rating. It has a descriptor next to it, right? So like if you, you know, get a, a three on the rubric overall, then I think you're viewed as a proficient teacher. If you get a four, which I think is the maximum, you are labeled as a highly effective teacher. So we have a system like that. 
And um, yeah. there's also then obviously less desirable ratings, right? So there's yes. developing. We have that rubric, that a similar rubric to what you're talking about. So when, when that pedagogical coach came in to observe me recently, I had to highlight where I thought I was in certain mm-hmm. parts of the explicit instruction. You know, was I proficient? Was I whatever? the other terms she we had to highlight where we thought we were at certain parts of the lesson you know like the closure or the the questioning or the demonstrating all that kind of stuff and then at the end of the lesson she kind of said oh you know and she did what where she thought we were or where I was but there is no number next to your name at the end of the school year about how you are rated as a teacher very interesting. And then are there also any standardized tests uh, that are a part of the educational process or no? Yes, there is. It's called NAPLAN and it's um, given in grade three, grade five, grade seven and grade nine. What do you guys have against odd numbers? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it's a spelling, reading, writing, sorry, spelling and grammar reading, writing, numeracy tests. So there's three three days of testing in one week. Okay. Yeah. That sounds, but I don't I don't that, agree with it. Oh, okay, but that that sounds better than stale, better than what we currently have and our testing days have decreased. The way testing goes here, our English language arts test itself used to be 3 days and now it is 2 days. For math, we also have 2 days. So we have a total of four And that's years. on every year level, is it? Every year, yes. As starting, okay. used to start at the fourth grade level. Now it starts at the third grade level. So third, fourth, every year. Yeah. Uh, we, yeah. We don't have to worry about that. That's very nice. I, 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 yeah. I just, um, you know, it's all about collecting data and it's a one point in time test. And, you know, we have parents that actually write in and say no I don't want my child to do this test that I don't want them to put be put under that stress and you know we've had that too too. we've the opt-out movement we've had a recent upsurge over the last three or four years of parents opting their children out of the test Mm. see the thing is also in Australia with with these tests so much rides on them they um you know, all the private schools do extremely well and the private schools use that data to, you know, put their information out to parents to say, you know, this is what we achieved in that plan. You, you know, you should be sending our child to this school. But, you know, sure. a, lot of, a, a lot of parents don't realise that for those private schools, a lot of children have to sit tests to be able to go, you know, tests or exams and if if they're not you know performing highly enough they can basically say oh you know maybe next year come back next year you know they they basically buffer who can come into their school and it's not a it's not a true indication sure and uh, that's the other measure of teacher effectiveness that is used here in the u.s which is wrong that's so wrong because it's that what like you were saying most teachers i think feel that way i think the the teachers that i've interviewed on the show especially everyone has said that there is some value in 
those tests. There could be important information that could come out of them, but very few agree that they should be used to determine how effective a teacher is. Well, the thing is, you can't determine who's in your class. So, you know, we, for example, um, last year, my year four cohort, they had one iPad class. So the class that had the iPad, so obviously they're from high, higher socioeconomics because they could purchase sure. the iPad because they had to purchase it themselves and bring it into school every day. So those mm-hmm. kids are obviously from higher socioeconomic families, which, you know, given history and data and all of that, they are probably going to perform higher because one, the parents are able to provide things for them, you know, have time for them to sit down and do homework and do things like that. A lot of children don't have those chances in their life. So therefore they don't always perform as well as we would like. Of course. Yes. And Um, that's what I don't agree with um, measuring a test against a teacher's capabilities. Like I could have a class full of C standard kids. My person next door to me could have a lot of D kids. You know, you can't, it really makes me angry. Tell me a little bit more about what you just said, C standard kids. So do you guys also mostly use the ABCD system for grading? Yes, we do. So on our um, rubrics, we have things that the students can do like um, knowledge and understanding or problem solving and, you know, all the um, content descriptors. So, for example, is able to write a narrative incorporating noun groups, verb groups, prepositions, da-da-da-da-da, for example, that. So if they are able to include all those things in their writing, that descriptor might be an A standard. So you would highlight where the child is at according to that content descriptor. I see, I see. So the descriptors are basically lumped under each category of ABC. So A is your highest and that's obviously the content descriptor that has all the things. So the A has all the things below it. So from E, starting at E, very, um, you know, basic, writes a sentence. Then your D, Mm -hmm. you know, might have correct spelling most of the time. So there's obviously your spelling and your your spelling and your, you know, the way you present it, your writing grammatically, and then you'll have like the genre, whether they've, you know, used a problem and a solution and have they incorporated mm-hmm. all those things. So we mark them according, the A, B, C, D, E, according to what's written in that rubric. Okay. No numbers at all. Very interesting. Which can be very difficult to mark sometimes, especially in mathematics, because you might have a kid that's able to problem solve really well, which is the A standard, and then they might have trouble just doing something very basic and they might get a D. So then you've got to use your professional judgment and think, well, what am I going to give this kid? Cause he's an A here and then he's done this at a D level. Do you understand what I mean? Sure, so it's sure. really, I mean, you might just say, oh, I'll give it a C, but then yeah, it can be really difficult marking against those rubrics. You can never do enough to make a rubric very explicit and clear. There's always sure. something in between. One of the topics of conversation or education discourse in the United States recently has been 
along the lines of identity and identity markers. A lot of the conversation has been around race and ethnicity. We're also talking a lot more about other identity markers like gender and issues of gender in the classroom, as well as issues related to sexual orientation in the classroom and how they present themselves and what educators need to be able to do to facilitate learning in a safe and supportive environment for all children. Is race... And those identity markers also a part of conversation in Australia these days, or has, is that something that's always been built in? No, we're definitely doing that because, um, you know, we have what what we call Harmony Day. Have you heard of Harmony Day? I have not. So, you know, all about the inclusivity in our curriculum, including those people with special needs and, mm-hmm. you know, no matter what race, um, religion, gender, um, you, you know, you're talking about sexual orientation. Uh, last year I had a student who um, was questioning her sexuality and she's like, this is grade four, and mm-hmm. she went home one Friday and said, oh, I'm, I'm going to um, cut, cut my hair off on the weekend. I'm going to get my hair cut. And then the next day she on the Monday she came in and I went, oh, you really did give a good haircut there. Like it was mm-hmm. a, she had hair like down to her waist and she'd cut it into like a boy's hairstyle and she had gone home after a week or whatever and had told and was crying to her parents and the parents sent me an email saying, you know, she's um, gender confused and, and I just went, like she's going home and talking about being bullied and everything. And I'm thinking, why didn't you come and see me and give me the heads up about this Mm -hmm. stuff? Because I don't expect to find out via an email that your child is gender confused. I just, I just, I couldn't believe it. I was in total disbelief. Um, This is a major thing in your student's life. Why would you not make an appointment to come and talk to me about it? Yeah, I can imagine it's also such a, a difficult thing to talk about because one might might just not know how to bring it. That's up, right. You know. That's right. Well, she's now her year five year was as a boy, so mm-hmm. she's uh, it's um yeah. There's definitely those things going on, but it's you know I think it's really important if your child's going through that stuff. Wouldn't your teacher be one of the first ports of call you give the heads up to? <laughs> yeah. Before she's going home and crying, saying I'm being bullied, this, that, and the other, like say, you know, our child's going through this, da da da, da before it gets to that stage. Yeah, it's a very challenging situation. Thinking about parent involvement and parent communication, it's one of those things that, at least in my experience, we, it's, a, it's a frustrating aspect. It doesn't always work perfectly, mm. uh, that collaboration. How's that? Uh, how do you guys find it over there, especially in your experience, uh, the parent involvement piece? Well, I, um, I have a very open I hope I have an open relationship with my students' parents. I encourage communication all the time. I actually, you know, the have you heard of the Remind app? Yes, I use it. Yeah, so I've used it for the last three years and I love it because it comes through like as a text message. That's great. And they can send me messages, you know, so-and-so needs to catch the bus today, can you remind them? And I can send photos of work and yes. when we went on school camp and things like that. So I, 
I'm just, uh, communication with parents is of major importance to me and I like to have it coming both ways. Sometimes, like, I know a lot of teachers like to um, not answer emails and stuff out of school time, but because it comes up on my phone and also the Remind comes up through my phone, I just like to have that option of being able to respond outside of school time because otherwise I forget sometimes sure. and I just like that instantaneous I will reply to you I know if, I mean some of them have texted me at 10 o'clock at night and I won't respond to that but I'll do it <laughs> right. in the morning but yeah it's really important to me um, and I think parents appreciate that communication also like knowing that they can just send me an email send me a message on remind and um, know that that's they've got peace of mind about something. Yeah, surely. Yes. I have I have a similar experience with that application. I do find that still there are just a couple of parents. It's it's harder for me to still uh, get them on board with the Remind app, even so. I still have to. Oh, yeah, you go outside the app it. sometimes, right? Because um, I went first day, so our first day will be the twenty seventh of January. I will have the Remind app picture up on my screen and because you don't always get to meet parents on the first day. Majority, so let's say I had 25 kids, I may have met 20 parents, and I'll say, see that picture of that app up there? Can you? It's free. Please get that on your phone because that's how I'll be communicating right. to you. So day one, as soon as they come into the classroom, I say, see that app? Download it, please. <laughs> so wait, wait a second. You said something about day one being January 27th or something. What was that? Yes. Yes. So what's this? We're in summer, remember? Yes, I I do. But for some reason it didn't register in my head that December would be like the summer holiday. So you guys get November and December off or December and January? No, 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 no. We only have six weeks. Oh, that's right. This is the difference about how we work compared to you guys and I don't know how you do it. So we have four term, we have four terms in a year, uh-huh. and we work for ten weeks and have two weeks off. We work for ten weeks, have two weeks off. Work for ten weeks, have two weeks off. Work for ten weeks and then have six weeks. My friend who lives over there tells me that sometimes you're working six, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen weeks without a break. Yes, sometimes. <laughs> that, that is ridiculous. No wonder there's like high burnout. And how do you get things out of kids? Seriously, I cannot understand how that happens. <laughs> I'm not sure if uh, all of us do. <laughs> we try though. They'll um, be like sitting like rocks for the last three weeks of leading up to break time. I, I have to say it also depends on obviously a lot of things. People adjust their practice accordingly. Some periods are, feel longer than others. But there are plenty of holidays that do break the. Uh, I know that as well. <laughs> you know, because uh, so. I I asked my friend how many days school days do you work in a year, and she said, "Oh, something like 186." Would 180. that be right? 180 exactly. 180. Yeah. So um, we work about 200. Yeah. So we actually work less than you guys, I guess. Right. Yes, but uh, you also don't have anything like long service leave there do you uh, what do you mean by long service leave like a sabbatical so, 
If I were, yeah, so if I work for seven years, I'm entitled to have seven weeks off. I can choose when I want to have it. I just need to put it like 20 weeks in advance. So, for example, I am heading overseas in August. So normally I'd be in school at August time. Mm-hmm. And I'm taking four weeks long service leave to travel. So I get that fully paid. So every so let's say I've been working for 10 years, I will have 10 weeks long service leave up my sleeve. So I could go and travel the world for 10 weeks and I still get paid. Wow, uh, that's that makes me very jealous. I, I, I don't think we have something exactly like that. There is a sabbatical once you are tenured. I, I don't know if it's a seven-year mark or the 10-year mark. I should know I've, I've been around 10 years, but <laughs> no one's talked to me about it. So I don't, I don't know if I have it. Yeah, that's very good great. for your sanity. <laughs> I can imagine. But yeah, it would be nice to have it. Yeah, so it is nice to have that, especially if you, you know, stumble across a class that can be rather difficult and you just think, oh, I just can't face them for, you know, X amount of time. Oh, I'm just going to take some long service leave. Your principal has to um, approve it though. So, yeah, but um, it's a handy little thing to have. Um, it can keep you sane when you've been teaching for so long. Yes, mental health, especially in uh, in schools, has become a bigger topic of conversation around here too. And part of the reason is just the stress in a lot of the schools where the needs are very high and children require a lot more support and you know resources are more limited. The levels of stress for, on adults in those environments. It's very, very high. And uh, yeah, we're talking more about it, but I don't think we've landed anywhere yet. It is it is good for us that you can know, right, we're working for 10 weeks and then I get two weeks off to rest and recharge and, you know, think about term two or term three or whatever. Right. It's, ju- it's just nice having that end point going, right, I've got 50 days with you to smash this work, get this done, and then I can you know, have a break for two weeks. Yeah, that sounds great. Well, we're running out of time. I do want to ask you this one last question about just the general perceptions and challenges of of teachers in Australia. So one, how does a society view the teaching profession and teachers? And second, what are some of the common frustrations you hear in your part of the world relating to the profession? I believe teachers aren't valued as highly as they should be by society here a lot of the public just think you know we get lots of holidays and work nine to three but that's far from the truth um you know when you've been working 30 years and you you had have only just hit six figures in your salary it's a bit sad when you look at you know doctors and dentists and what they would be achieving Mm -hmm. in in six in 30 years you know it i just think as a profession we're we're undervalued but you know you talk to some parents and they'll say oh i just don't know how you do it when they have their kids on holidays and stuff like that you know Mm -hmm. and it's just it's quite sad that that it's like that but I just, I just don't know how to change it and and big change that you've seen and I know there's some really uh, funny memes on Instagram and stuff, you know, the kid comes home and, in, in, you know, 20 years ago the kid comes home and the 
parents say, what did you do wrong? And then the ones from this day is like, um, you know, what is why the are you treating you? my child like this? <laughs> yeah. You know, <laughs> believing the child over the, the um, teacher, um, which, you know, I don't know. I, I worry about the future in terms of kids coming through and leading countries. <laughs> mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, I don't know how we can change it and make it any better and change the profession. It's mm-hmm. just I know we're, ch- make, we're making changes here in universities that they're academic-wise. They have to pass certain tests to be able to graduate. So ni- literacy and numeracy tests they have to um, pass. It's like a, a year nine, mm-hmm. you know, those standardised tests we're talking about. It's like a standardised test that a year nine person would sit. The teachers in university have to sit that. So they're upping the standards in terms mm-hmm. of literacy and numeracy because, you know, I know there would be some parents that would definitely be questioning some teachers in terms of their literacy levels. Sorry, what was your other second part of the question? What what are some of the common frustrations that teachers face related to their profession? Not knowing what students have dealt with the night before or the morning they walk into the classroom. You know, it would be Mm -hmm. nice to, um, like I do a check-in system with my kids where I have a little they have their name tag and they put it into how are you feeling? I'm happy, I'm excited, I'm feeling nervous, I'm tired, I'm feeling sick. So you can actually have a little bit of an indication. Like we sometimes don't have time to check in with kids. Like they could have come to school and, you know, mum could have given them a whack or dad could have given mum a whack or all, all mm, those things anything. that we don't know. And that influences them and how they're going to behave that day. Um, another challenge is kids having devices in front of them too early. Mm. They used to enjoy a movie, but, you know, some it's really rare for them to s- sit down and actually enjoy a movie these days. I'm just wondering whether it's just used babysitting and, yeah. So years ago you used to be able to put a movie on for the kids to watch and I just find you can't even do that these days. They don't, do, they don't enjoy it. Another frustration I have, um, well, a lot of people, teachers, have just um, lack of support from administration in certain things, just, you know, not following up things or not acting on stuff that you may have reported, just dropping into the classroom to not only just check on the kids but just say, hi, how are you going? How's your day been? Like checking on me, mm-hmm. that would be nice. Yeah. And I yeah. don't think there's enough of that these days because talking about mental health, like you you mentioned before, it's our job's only getting more difficult. It's not getting easier with the paperwork and the logging onto the computer or your communication to parents. Like we've got to log on all our communication to parents that we have. Um, and it just would be nice to... You know, for someone to come into my room and not necessarily check on the kids and just say, you know, how are you going? How's your day been? Can I help you with anything? Yeah. And that's not happening so much. They're just too busy and too bogged down. Yeah. But I think that's really important for a teacher's mental health. Really important. Great uh, words of advice for I think all of people in any kind of leadership capacity, even department chairs, we can all do a little bit of that for each other as well, I think. Oh, for sure. Yes. 
Thank you so much for your time. This has been such an informative conversation. I learned so much <laughs> from you. Thank you. You're welcome. It was great to chat to you, and I'm sorry I kept you up so late. And that's all for today's episode, folks. Thank you for tuning in. Turn and Talk Podcast is your one-stop shop for learning about what is actually happening in schools today directly from the people who are working in today's schools. The support for this podcast comes from listeners like yourself, people who are interested in the present and the future of education. So feel free to head on over to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash turnandtalkpodcast. We invite you to also follow us on Instagram at turnandtalkpodcast. If you haven't subscribed, yet, please go ahead and do that too so that all future episodes are available to you upon release and downloaded immediately to your device. If you have questions, thoughts, feedback, or if you work in a school and would like to take the mic back, please, please email us at turnandtalkpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for tuning in. This is your host, Jay McSuits, signing out. Peace.